Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's a dark and stormy night sometime in 1936 and the cargo ship Rocco is making its way through heavy Pacific seas under the command of Captain Druce. But this skipper's got more than the weather to fret about. In addition to a handful of passengers who occupy the few cabins, he has aboard a handcuffed murderer who he's delivering to New Caledonia to stand trial. In a strange coincidence, the captain also knows that among the passengers there's an undercover Australian detective, though, confusingly, this police officer doesn't know the identity of the murderer. Anyway, in storm-tossed seas, lightning strikes Rocco and the captain sends out an SOS before his ship sinks beneath the waves. At dawn, in the surf of a remote island, handsome young Morris Carthew saves beautiful socialite Audrey Challoner. After a bit of banter, they find a handful of other survivors. Captain Druce has survived, but he's unconscious. The first mate assembles the castaways. There are a few things I'd better be saying if we're to be understanding each other. He tells them that Rocco went down near shipping routes and plenty of supplies have been salvaged. So they should be fine until they're rescued. The first mate asks them to introduce themselves. There are Morris and Audrey, and Audrey's uptight lady chaperone, along with a couple of other tourists, a pompous man of the cloth, a well-regarded plantation owner, and a comical drunken moocher. Now the first mate reveals that two of them aren't who they say they are. I'm sorry to say, gentlemen, that two of you are lying. One is an Australian detective, and the other was a desperate killer named Arnold. Only Captain Drews knows who's who, and the skipper's still out for the count. As for why the detective doesn't identify himself, heroic Morris Carthew thinks that's pretty obvious. He's laying low so he can expose the villain. 
a bit hard to make sense of? Maybe Brian Abbott thinks so as he flicks through the script while the passenger steamer Marinda takes him and Mystery Island's cast and crew to Lord Howe Island. There's not much to the story when there could be so much more. This sort of Agatha Christie setup usually sees the villain bumping off characters, but Mystery Island lowers the stakes because the murderer and the detective don't reveal themselves until the very end. When they start filming on Lord Howe, Brian, as Morris, is only going to have a little daring do to do. Mostly, his character does a bit of exploring, suggests lighting signal fires, chats to other characters about who this murderer chap may be, and of course, woos Jean Laidley's love interest in a romantic subplot that sees them sing a sunset duet of the theme song Mystery Isle. Right at the end, the script does call for fisticuffs, though nothing close to the scale of the free-for-all fight scene at the end of Orphan of the Wilderness. So, it's a little underwhelming, but who's complaining when they're about to make a movie on beautiful Lord Howe Island? Morris, shipwreck surviving hero, even has a bit that might ring true for Brian Abbott, who, as George Rickard Bell, has had his fair share of life and death adventures at sea. Well, young fella, I see you brought the young lady safely through. Good lad. You see, I was born under a lucky star. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part four of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. I'm releasing installments weekly, but if you're a supporter of the show, you can hear the whole story right now and see a photo gallery of the people we're hearing about. As a supporter, you'll help me keep making Forgotten Australia, and you'll also get access to two amazing side stories to this episode. One is about a horrific 1909 shipwreck, and the other is about an unsolved murder from 1927. Supporting Forgotten Australia costs only a few bucks a month. For information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or click the link in your show notes. The steam passenger liner Marinda arrived early on Monday the 7th of September 1936. It's safe to say that Lord Howe Island took their breath away. It was like the Garden of Eden. What also struck them was its people were so warm and welcoming and offered every sort of assistance. The Mystery Island movie people showed their thanks the way they knew best. That was, they put on a show. The Islanders had just built a new community hall, and soon after arriving, the Mystery Island players lent their vocal, musical, theatrical and comic talents to a variety program that served as the unofficial opening of this new venue. Lord Howe Islanders know how to party, so it would have been a great night. Then, it was down to work. Filming of Mystery Island got underway fast and the schedule called for long days. Mostly, they'd shoot on the southwestern part of the island near Mount Gower and Mount Lidgebird and also on Ned's Beach on the northeastern side. Arriving at these locations by boat with their tons of equipment, the actors would be carried ashore in order that their clothes should stay dry. They'd do their own makeup in palm lean-tos while technicians went about the intricate business of setting up the camera and sound gear. There are plenty of photos of this production at the National Film and Sound Archive, and it really is striking how much equipment they had to lug around by boat and by horse sledge. This included dozens of big 45 volt batteries needed to power the two cameras and bulky sound recording unit. Once everything was ready, they'd shoot for a few hours, break for lunch, and then knock off a few more hours before packing down as they started to lose light. 
day done, they'd returned to the settled part of the island. The surroundings were amazing, but conditions were far from ideal for filmmaking. Southern squalls made it difficult to travel even the few miles around the island's shores. Wind and wave noise, meanwhile, played havoc with the sound recording, with experienced audio supervisor Mervyn Murphy resorting to fixing concealed microphones to the actors' clothing. Night scenes were even more difficult. Taken with lights run from a generator, the production had brought on Marinda. Adding immeasurably to the challenge was the fact that film couldn't be processed on the island, and this meant they couldn't view rushes at the end of each day to ensure they had what they needed. The best they could do was listen back to that day's audio recordings. It was a dicey way to make a movie. The production's single worst setback was when 2,000 feet of footage were lost overboard during one of their boat journeys. This was reportedly made up with a day of reshoots. Lord Howe Island had no telephone or telegraph connection to the mainland. Most communications were still by letter carried every few weeks by the Marinda. But in mid-1929, a wireless station had been installed on the island, so important messages could be sent to ships at sea and to the east coast of Australia. It was by this wireless medium that the Daily Telegraph on the 12th of September was able to print an update during filming. The little article recounted the basics of a recent real-life adventure that illustrated the tempestuous nature of the Tasman Sea. Brian Abbott, Gene Laidley, director Joe Lippmann, producer Jack Bruce and cameraman George Malcolm had been taken by motor launch from Lord Howe to the Admiralty Islands. These volcanic protrusions are a few miles north of Ned's Beach and are home to tens if not hundreds of thousands of birds. There, they filmed an exploring scene whose highlight was Brian pulling a mutton bird from the air and handing it to Jean. They also caught another cute scene of them patting a fluffy white masked booby chick. Jean had to laugh and keep in character, even as she was pecked by these birds badly enough to leave marks. Later in the day, a storm swept in, and it wasn't possible for islanders to pick them up. It must have been pretty rough because, as we'll hear, some of Lord Howe's old sea salts would venture out in conditions that would make King Neptune turn green. Stranded on the Admiralties without shelter, the actors and filmmakers got a cold and wet taste of what it was like to be shipwreck survivors, at least until the morning when they were rescued by the islanders. It was right after this that Brian Abbott sat down to write an account of filming so far for the Australian Women's Weekly. The piece, dated the 12th of September, was colourful, publicity-friendly stuff. He said that he, Jean and Leslie Hay Simpson had already developed the habit of starting each day with an early morning swim in the warm waters of the sparkling lagoon. Then they did various exercises, had showers and massages, and had a little sing-along, both to practice the theme song and for the sheer pleasure of it. Quote, Immediately after breakfast, we troop down to the jetty where we jump into a motorboat which tows a couple of surf boats loaded to the gunwales with cameras, sound recording equipment, lighting equipment, reflectors, camera dollies, etc. Then we glide over the lovely lagoon, skirting islets and dodging volcanic reefs and fairy-like coral formations until we arrive at our own little beach. Here, passengers and equipment are carried through the surf to a palmy paradise nestling beneath towering mountains over 2,000 feet in height. After the day's filming came the return to base. Quote, We pack up our gear and cover it with a tarpaulin before we pile back into the boats. On the long trip home, we encounter a rain squall, which puts our engine temporarily out of action. 
Jack Bruce, technical supervisor, comes to the rescue, and after about half an hour's wetting, we get underway again. Now we notice for the first time the full force of blinding tropical rain. But it was nothing that a sing-along couldn't help. Quote, Film folk are cheery folk, whatever else. Not a single complaint, not a groan, just burst after burst of song and laughter. Later, after a dinner of kingfish caught by a cast member, the actors did line readings to prepare for the following day, before telling stories and indulging in more harmonising. Brian only made passing reference to getting stuck on the Admiralty Islands, but he did describe the rigours of freezing in pre-dawn surf to get his rescue of Jean Wright, and expressed comic outrage at being told that they might have to film this again. It was all fun and games. Quote, We sing, we have supper, we stroll, or we yarn, or we dance, and at length we sleep. This lovely isle has completely captivated its filmmakers. There's more to this article, which we'll hear a little later on. But what was really mysterious was the cover letter that Brian posted to the Australian Women's Weekly. It read simply, quote, I shall be attempting a very adventurous voyage in October. However, I have strong personal reasons for no word of this trip of mine to be published until it has actually begun. It's not clear when the Australian Women's Weekly received this. Most likely, it was around the third week of September, brought with other mails by Marinda from Lord Howe Island on its fortnightly trip. The magazine honoured Brian's request and didn't publish his letter or his article for another month. Why was Brian being so secretive? Why didn't he spell out his plan to sail his tiny motor launch Mystery Star back to Sydney? It would have been a huge publicity boost for the movie while it was still in production. He certainly wasn't hiding the plan from his wife Grace. She knew and she wasn't too pleased about it. Brian's parents, Dr. Harry and Mrs. Eileen Rickard-Bell, didn't know, so maybe he was protecting them from worry. More likely, though, Brian kept it secret so he wouldn't be stopped. If word got out early, it'd give the cast, crew and Lord Howe Islanders too much time to try to talk him out of it. Even more of a concern would be the politicians getting wise. Chief Secretary Frank Chaffee had responsibility not just for Lord Howe Island, but for film censorship in New South Wales. And his 2IC, Sydney-based Edward Harkness, was chairman of Lord Howe Island's Board of Control. Mystery Island was only being made with their permission. If they got wind of what Brian was planning, these men might try to stop him from undertaking the voyage, and if he defied them, they could bring punitive measures against the production. So Brian kept quiet about what he intended to do. Yet that didn't mean that he kept Mystery Star hidden away. Far from it. He used the little boat to explore the island during his downtime. One day, Lord Howe Island locals gathered on the jetty to watch Brian put his little craft through its paces on the lagoon. This seems to have been done for fun, but there was also a photographer present. It had seemed that Brian intended to use these photos to depict him leaving the island bound for Sydney, brave solo voyager. Brian, who stood six foot two, was even more oversized than Gordon Doherty and Molly Pankhurst had been in the pup. One photo shows him framed by Mount Gower and Mount Lidgebird, waving as if he's off on a voyage across the open sea. Another has him in the cockpit, eyes on the ocean ahead, with a two-gallon tin of petrol in one hand and a cigarette in the other. A third picture has Brian standing on the jetty, surrounded by locals, again as if they're seeing him off. In this picture, the young movie star, 
in bare feet, shorts and a short-sleeved shirt, is shaking hands with a middle-aged chap dapper in a sailor's jacket and skipper's cap. This sturdy, tanned figure was Gower Chase Wilson. For the rest of the year, and forever after, his and Brian's names would appear together in newspaper articles and any history written of Lord Howe Island. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Born in 1886, Gower was the grandson of pioneering settler Nathan Chase Thompson, who we heard about in the second instalment. Gower was the son of his daughter Mary and her husband, the schoolteacher Thomas Wilson. By 1915, Gower was married with three children. In August that year, he became one of the Band of Nine. These were the men from the island who signed up to fight in the Great War. The Band of Nine pretty much represented Lord Howe's entire eligible male population. Gower went into training in Sydney. But after two months, his wife Ada, then also in Sydney because she was receiving medical treatment, wrote a letter to the army. In it, she said she'd soon be returning to the island, but she wasn't well enough to look after their three kids. Ada's letter, found in Gower's military records, asked that her husband be discharged. In effect, she was requesting, please excuse my husband from this war. The army complied, which I'm guessing didn't make Gower too happy. But he was determined to do his bit. Gower re-enlisted in June 1917 and served in France as a sapper during the last six months of the war. He came through and returned home to Lord Howe. My great-uncle, Harold Ingram Nichols, was also one of the Band of Nine. He also lived, but he'd move to the mainland and get work in Sydney as a surveyor involved in the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Two of the Band of Nine, Tom Innes, another of Mary Andrews' grandsons, and Arthur Dignam, uncle of the late actor of the same name, never saw Lord Howe Island again, making the ultimate sacrifice on the Western Front. By 1922, according to a report in The Sun, Lord Howe Island's population was 120. Peacetime brought tourists via the now regular steamer service, and Gower, who'd had three more children with Ada, expanded the Ocean View guesthouse and established himself as the island's most beloved host. When the New South Wales governor, Sir Philip Game, visited in 1933, he was guest of honour at an old soldier's dinner hosted by Gower Wilson. While a superb host, Gower was as renowned for his skill as a sailor. Numerous newspaper articles depicted his courage under terrible conditions. In January 1931, a Sydney Mail writer described reaching the island aboard the steamer Macambo during a cyclone. The passenger liner was stuck far offshore, but quote, Gower Wilson, with his superb boat crew, came out again to us. They collected the mails and one or two daring souls who were willing to face the trip ashore in such turbulent seas. The captain of the Macambo holds the opinion that the Lord Howe Islanders are the best boatmen he has seen. In January 1936, 
33-year-old Edith Nichols, who was my great-aunt by marriage, was in danger of dying from appendicitis on Lord Howe. The wireless station broadcast an emergency message to the steamer Monowai, which was 200 miles away, bound for New Zealand. Monowai diverted course and raced to Lord Howe. But the captain didn't have charts for the island and a huge swell meant that the vessel couldn't get closer than three miles offshore. Gail Wilson went out in his motor launch and brought two doctors and a nurse to the island. A reporter for the Sun newspaper also hopped in. Quote, It was only after many anxious moments and splendid seamanship by Gower Wilson that the jetty was reached. The doctors examined Edith in her home, ready to perform surgery on a makeshift table they'd brought from the boat. But they thought the safest course of action was to evacuate her. So Gower took Edith, my great-uncle William, the doctors, the nurse and the reporter back out through the swirling seas to Monowai. There, she was lifted aboard by a crane in a sling so she could be taken to New Zealand. Thanks to Gower Wilson, Edith would live to the age of 80. The Sun reporter noted that this was the fourth such life-and-death dash since the island's wireless station had been installed. Each time it happened, it wasn't just lives that were endangered. It was livelihoods too. William and Edith Nichols would be slugged with a £300 bill from the steamship company to help cover the cost of the diversion. At this time, the minimum weekly wage on the mainland was about £4. So £300 was about a year and a half's pay. Thing was though, Islanders earned far less than this. The Sun reported that William Nichols had, quote, the unenvied distinction of having footed the bill for one of the most expensive appendicitis operations on record. Lord Howe Islanders, led by Gower Wilson, had long agitated for the government to provide a resident doctor and some sort of hospital to serve their permanent population, which now numbered 200, and the 50 to 75 tourists there at any given time. In early 1936, Gower Wilson had something else on his mind. He was going to need a bigger boat. Such a vessel might make the occasional mercy dash safer but Gower's primary reason was so he could take ocean view guests out on deep-sea fishing charters. To realise this dream, Gower ordered a motor yacht built at Palm Beach. His new launch would be 32 feet long, have a 9 feet 6 inch beam, a draft of 3 feet 6, and have a 30 horsepower engine, as well as carrying sail. The Mystery Island cast and crew stayed at the Ocean View Guesthouse so it would have been up to Gower to ensure everybody was comfortable. And in his unofficial role as the island's headman, he would have taken it upon himself to ensure that Mystery Island's production went as smoothly as possible. There's a very good chance he was the one to run them out to the Admiralty Islands and then knew it was too dangerous even for him to attempt to pick them up as that gale blew in. There are numerous articles from the 1920s and 1930s in which tourists to the island single out Gower Wilson as being the man who'd made them feel at home. It would have been the same for the Mystery Island people. Brian Abbott, the outdoorsy, laid-back, former jackaroo turned adventurous sailor turned movie star, very likely endeared himself to Ocean View's host. The photo of them together on the jetty, while posed, certainly looks genial. What we do know is that Gower took Mystery Star out on the lagoon. We don't know what he thought about how it handled on those calm, shallow waters. But we do know he didn't think it was fit for much beyond that. By the 3rd of October, Mystery Island was in the can, 
and Gower Wilson's brand new deep sea fishing launch was almost ready for him to pick up on the mainland. The steamer Marinda was due the next day and it'd be taking all of them to Sydney. That night though, Brian Abbott made his surprise announcement. He was going to return to Sydney in Mystery Star. Producer Jack Bruce warned against it. But Brian was now out of contract so he couldn't ban him from going. Director Joe Lippman also pleaded with Brian to reconsider and so did cameraman George Malcolm and Gene Laidley. Brian said he'd be fine. When his co-star Leslie Hay Simpson spoke up, it was to ask if he could go too. This surely had to boost Brian's confidence. But taking Leslie would be a squeeze, and he and his supplies would add weight and reduce fuel efficiency. Further, there was only one sleeping berth. With the cowling in place in bad weather, only one man could sit in the cockpit. The other fella would be stuck in that little cabin. Nevertheless, Brian agreed. Two men could be better than one. Even though Leslie Hay Simpson didn't have experience as a sailor, he could hold the tiller for an hour or two while Brian got precious sleep, so he didn't have to stay awake day in, day out, as Gordon Doherty and Wally Pankhurst had been forced to do when fighting big seas in pup. Most Lord Howe Islanders were dead against Brian and Leslie attempting this trip. Though Sylph had been lost 63 years ago, this tragedy still cast its shadow. Old-timers still remembered lost parents, uncles and aunts. Lord Howe Islanders quickly convened a meeting to discuss how they could stop Brian from making this voyage. At this powwow, someone reportedly even suggested burning Mystery Star. But that was against the Islanders' own code of individualism. Maybe Brian could be made to listen to reason. And if he'd listened to anyone, it'd be Gower Wilson. Gower had made the trip between Lord Howe Island and Sydney five times in small craft. The smallest of these, though, had been 28 feet, meaning it was nearly twice the size of Mystery Star. Gower told Brian that the currents he'd be facing were treacherous. He said he wouldn't himself attempt the voyage in any small vessel without a good compass, a sextant and a thoroughly dependable chronometer. Mystery Star was only equipped with a compass. Gower explained that in a heavy current, there was no way to keep a constant course. Before you knew it, you'd have no idea of your position. Brian didn't take this advice. Why? Well, perhaps because Gower himself had made the voyage five times and lived to tell the tale. Brian also had the example of the pup. How much did Lord Howe Islanders know about that? Though out of date by days or weeks, the Sydney papers did reach the island by steamer, so perhaps they had read the articles. If so, that would only have strengthened Brian's case that Mystery Star was fit for this trip. Further, not every islander was against the voyage. 32-year-old Edward Quintal, a direct descendant of a bounty mutineer, had been born on Norfolk Island but made his home on Lord Howe. He'd been given a small role in Mystery Island, and now he wanted a part of the Mystery Star adventure. But Edward Quintal couldn't go. There really wasn't enough room for two men, let alone three. When Marinda arrived, its captain also lent his voice to the opposition. Yet Brian still wouldn't be talked out of it. Hoping at least to keep him safer, Captain Rothery checked Mystery Star's compass against Marinda's. 
His first officer, Mr Doty, gave Brian details of courses and distances and advised him the best thing to do was head due east 310 miles for Port Macquarie and then work his way down the coast from there. Marinda sailed from Lord Howe Island on the 4th of October with Mystery Island's cast and crew. Brian Abbott followed the steamer for a short distance in Mystery Star. Up on deck, sound engineer Mervyn Murphy called out, Cheerio, Brian! His friend called back. That's alright, you have not seen the last of me. I'll see you at the Man of War Steps at 4pm on October 17. Marinda arrived in Sydney on Tuesday the 6th. The Sun and the Sydney Morning Herald reported that its passengers included Gower Wilson, who was on the mainland to pick up his motor launch for its maiden voyage back to Lord Howe. But the movie people, they were the big story. Jean Laidley told a reporter for The Sun, quote, It has been a simply marvellous trip. It took a month to complete the picture because quite often sudden storms would arise in the middle of taking a scene and we would have to take shelter until the next burst of sunshine. Director Joe Lippman praised the islanders for the help they'd offered in manning surfboats and moving gear and taking extra roles. Speaking of which, Edward Quintal, visiting the mainland, said he'd liked being part of the picture but wished the fight scenes had been a bit rowdier. Cameraman George Malcolm said he'd never shot in such brilliant light and pure air. The Daily Telegraph reporter noted they'd come back not only with 45,000 feet of footage but also with, quote, a large amount of suntan, tales of fishing exploits and the memory of the five weeks in which they were one happy family. One happy family that was missing two of its sons, leading man Brian Abbott and supporting actor Leslie Hay Simpson. Their plans made headlines that quickly overshadowed stories about the film. The Daily News in Perth went with Actors Plan Risky Launch Trip. Maitland Daily Mercury's headline Movie Actors Perilous Trip. The Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate opted for Actors Plan Adventure. These first reports were based on what Brian had said before Marinda left, that he and Leslie would set off sometime in the next two weeks. But two days after their friends left, around the same time Marinda was reaching Sydney, Brian sent a radiogram from Lord Howe to Jean Laidley. Knowing it would be delivered the next day, it simply said that he and Leslie had left on Tuesday night and they expected to be in Sydney in four to eight days. When Brian told the Lord Howe Islanders that they were leaving, the postmaster gave him a bag of letters for the mainland. This seemed to show that Brian's confidence had rubbed off on at least a few locals or tourists. After all, there was no point in trusting a letter to a carrier you expected to soon be in Davy Jones's locker. At about 10 that night, October the 6th, in good weather, under a waning gibbous moon, Brian Abbott and Leslie Hay Simpson were ready to set out from Lord Howe's lagoon. A large crowd of islanders gathered on the beach to see the men off. Most might be against it, and some seemingly still said so, but everyone wished them well. That night, Brian and Leslie reportedly wore khaki shorts and shirts. They also carried oilskin coats and sou'wester hats to protect against the elements. They had supplies for 10 days. Their pantry included a cooked leg of mutton each, along with chocolate and tinned goods. They had plenty of fresh water and more than enough fuel to cover the distance. Brian Abbott and Leslie Hay Simpson said their final farewells to the Lord Howe Islanders. 
With the boat's two and a half horsepower engine humming, Brian at the tiller and Leslie beside him or on the deck, Mystery Star cruised out across the lagoon, through the breakers and out past the reef for the open ocean. There were 500 miles of open sea between this 16-foot motor launch and the safety of Sydney Harbour. The Lord Howe Islanders watched Mystery Star disappear into the darkness of the Tasman Sea and they listened until its little engine could no longer be heard over the wind and the waves. So why was Leslie Hay Simpson doing this? He had no seafaring experience. He'd put his trust in Brian Abbott. Brian, who for his whole life had been nothing if not confident. Brian, who knew how to sell anything to anyone. Brian, who knew Mystery Star was a better version of the pup and powered by a newer version of that two and a half horsepower engine renowned for not missing a beat in days of continuous use under the very worst of conditions. Brian, who'd worked on big ships for far longer than he'd been an actor. Brian, who'd cheated death at sea time after time, including on that five-month, 700-mile canoe journey. Brian, who'd been born under a lucky star. As for why Brian wanted to do it, his wife would say she'd tried to dissuade him, but, quote, his love of the sea is so deep that I was sure he would not be able to resist the lure of the adventure. But there was almost certainly more to it than that. Turning up at the Man of War steps, right there on Benelong Point, on a spring afternoon, newspapers and newsreels in attendance would be fantastic advertising for Brian Abbott. Just a few months ago, when Captain Blood was being released, articles about its star were invariably about his art imitating his life. The Adelaide Advertiser headline from the 4th of June was representative. Quote, Amazing rise of Errol Flynn. His life story reads like a film adventure. But of course, Brian Abbott couldn't boast about his Queensland canoe odyssey and all its thrills without risking being exposed for his subsequent shady turf shenanigans in the Sunshine State. But sailing Mystery Star from Lord Howe across the treacherous Tasman to Sydney, he'd do that not as George Rickard Bell, but as Brian Abbott, Australia's new action man, on and off the silver screen. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia eight-part series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Part five will be released next week. But as a supporter of Forgotten Australia, you can hear the rest of the story right now. Not only that, but supporters also can hear two bonus shows that came out of research for this episode. To become a supporter, go to patreon.com Forgotten Australia, and this link is in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.